Well, as it has already been mentioned this morning, we are very excited that the first refugee family from Liberia is on their way, possibly as we speak this morning. And uh, when I received the email just last week, Monday, I was uh, quite surprised, excited, and then nervous because we've been working on this for so long, many hours and all sorts of preparations have gone into this over the many months, and now that it's actually happening, this is where a little bit of the nerves kick in, and now is where it becomes reality. So I want to thank all of you who, who have been praying for this, uh, helping in various ways, uh, either hands-on or, or simply through your, your support. And so I just ask for the coming days, especially, that you will remember this in your prayers, that the transition could be smooth, and that for all the volunteers uh, that we would have a genuine uh, love for these people and that we would be able to show them the love of Christ and show them a genuine welcome to our community, that we can settle them in and uh, that they can make a home here. And so, uh, yeah, please please hold us up in your prayers in, in this regard. It's very much appreciated. We also, uh, this, this morning, want to uh, take a moment to acknowledge the great work that's happening uh, at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp this summer. Uh, who of you received some of the, the updates by email from each week? Does, any, does anyone here receive the updates? I see a few hands going up. That's good. There's also updates available in the, the foyer of the church, and also if you check uh, on the camp website as well, there are ongoing updates for every week of what's happening, and there's good reports happening again. The gospel's going forward. Boys and girls are, are hearing the gospel, and many are making decisions to follow Christ, and so we want to Remember to not take that ministry for granted and uphold them in our prayers as well. And also pray for those in our church family who are directly working at camp this summer. And I know that uh, Luke and Paul are working at camp this summer. I know that Mitchell is planning on working at camp this summer. I think I might be missing someone else who might be volunteering in some capacity at camp this summer. But uh, we want to specifically pray for them. And also remember to pray for myself and Leanne as we'll be uh, going to be chapel speakers at the end of August. We're there for high school week. And so uh, that's coming up faster than I'd like, actually. Summer just seems to clip by, doesn't it? It's already almost end of July. So these things happen quickly, but uh, let's remember to pray for them. They are very important, the things that are happening right now. So would you now bow with me and let's pray together. Father God, we come to you today and we thank you, first of all, that you are a wonderful Father. You are so good to us. You know our hearts, you know our needs, and you provide richly and abundantly in so many ways. So thank you for that. Lord, we want to also take a moment to acknowledge that we are living in a broken world, and you are well aware of this. As we look at the world around us, we see chaos, we see violence, we see divisions, we see hatred. And so, Father, as we, as we look at all of these situations happening, we simply know that it's beyond our power to do uh, very much about it, if anything. And yet we come to you, who is the Creator, the Sovereign Lord, and we know that you are able to do uh, exactly what you will. In these situations that seem so large, you can bring about peace, you can bring about harmony where there is discord. And so we pray, Lord, that you would have your will in this world and your way. And we know that this way is through Jesus Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that even as we hear of, of chaos and upheaval in the Middle East, uh, as refugees are fleeing in all directions, 
We thank you for the reports we're also hearing of many who are coming to Christ as a result of this. We hear, Lord, reports of many in the Muslim world who are turning to Jesus Christ as Savior. And so for this, we give you praise that you are the Lord, you are sovereign, and in what we see as something terrible, you can bring about good. And so we pray that where the devil intends evil, you would bring about good, Lord. And we pray that many in this world would come to salvation. And so we pray, Lord, wherever... Wherever there are those who need you, that we as the church will be ready to be a voice, to be a helping hand in your name, and that by our witness, more could come to know you as Savior as well. And so we pray that you would cause our witness to shine, Lord, and we pray that your word would go forth. And so, Father, we also pray for the ministry uh, right here in our own province at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp and the many other Bible camps that are operating as well. We pray for protection, Lord. We pray for... Uh, provision, and we pray that many uh, young lives would be changed by the gospel, that they would meet you, the living God, and that they would know you, you are real, that you love them, and that you have a way for them. And so I pray that many would come to you. So bless them, Lord. Father, as we also uh, are preparing to receive a, a family from Africa in our own community, I pray, Lord, that you would be with them as they travel. I can only imagine how uh, nervous they must be. If I'm, if I'm nervous, I can't imagine how nervous they are coming to a new land, and so I pray that you would be with them, give them peace, give them safety as they travel, and we pray that we would be able to give them a welcome in your name, Lord, that we could change their future by giving them a home here. And so we pray that you would bless that endeavor. Now, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for how it speaks to our hearts and it sharpens Uh, It sharpens us, Lord. It changes us. It challenges what we are sometimes think is the truth, and then we find out that you have another way. And so we pray that again this morning you would do your work in us through your word and by your spirit. So speak through me, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Begin this morning with a well-known story of a a fictional tale that goes something like this. Sherlock Holmes and Dr. Watson were going on a camping trip. After a good meal, they lay down for the night and they went to sleep. Some hours later, in the middle of the night, Holmes awakes and nudge his faithful friend beside him. Watson, look up at the sky and tell me what you see. Watson replied, Well, I see millions and millions of stars. Holmes asked, And what does that tell you? Watson, knowing Sherlock Holmes' incredible powers of observation, thought for a minute, and then finally gave this reply. Astronomically, it tells me that there are millions of galaxies and potentially billions of planets. Astrologically, I observe that Saturn is in Leo. Horologically, I deduce that the time is approximately a quarter past three. Theologically, I can see that God is omnipotent and that we are small and insignificant. Meteorologically, I can see that we will have a beautiful day tomorrow. Finally, quite pleased with himself and his excellent response, Watson then turned to Holmes and asked, And what does it tell you? Holmes was silent for a moment and then replied, It tells me, dear Watson, that someone has stolen our tent. (laughs) Sometimes when we're looking for the perfect answer, we're missing what's right in front of our eyes, aren't we? Now today we are beginning a four-part series entitled, prepared to give an answer. And in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, we are instructed, but in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. 
Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. Now, in this series, we are going to be looking at the idea of being prepared to give an answer, and we're going to be looking at the field of apologetics. Apologetics is the term used to describe giving reasons for our faith or making a defense of the faith. The Apostle Paul was a master at using apologetics. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 7, he tells the church, Whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. And so here we see that one of his primary callings, as he saw it, was giving a defense and, and reasons for the gospel. Now, I realize that the term apologetic sounds a lot like the word apologize, but there's actually a sharp distinction that I want to draw between the term apologetics and apologize. You see, when someone asks about God or your faith in God or why do you believe, you can apologize and simply say, I'm sorry, I don't know how to answer that. And that's not what God would want us to be doing. Because the alternative is that we can say, you know, I'm really glad you asked me that. And I don't have all the answers, but I'll do my best to explain it to you. And then to give your response. You see, Christians are not called to to apologize for not being prepared, but to instead be prepared and use apologetics to explain the reasons for your faith. Now, there are many people who would say that faith is blind by which they typically mean that in order to believe in God and to become a Christian, you must close your eyes to any other evidence, stop using your mind, stop asking questions, and just blindly believe that God is real and the Bible is true. As an example of this, the majority of people in our nation today, the statistics all bear this out, so I'm not going to bother with statistics, but simply to say the majority of people, most of the people who are not attending church, most of the people that you know in this community today believe that science has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that the universe began and became what it is today by the process known as evolution. The vast majority of people we will interact with believe this. They have this worldview. While our family was on holidays in Alberta, we took our boys to the Royal Tyrell Dinosaur Museum in Drumheller. Has anyone been to this museum? Yeah, quite a few of you. So you know uh, it's, it's spectacular to see the, the fossils and the different exhibits there. But while the fossils were spectacular, right from the very first stepping through the doors, it pained me to see the great lengths that the museum had gone to in promoting the theory of evolution. This wasn't just about displaying what they had found and presenting theories. No, one of the very first exhibits was not even dinosaur fossils, but it was simply entitled Proofs for Evolution. And without going into specifics, I immediately recognized that three of these so-called proofs have already been debunked, and yet there they stood making their claim that these were proofs for evolution. And so right next to me, as I'm looking at these so-called proofs, there's this exhibit that shows the, uh, the so-called progression of evolution from one skull that they found here to another, and there was this replica of the so-called Java Man skull. And as I'm looking at this, there's another dad with his young son about Declan's age beside me, and I overhear him saying to his son, Isn't that neat, son? That's where we come from. 
And it just, ah, it hurt me to hear that. It hurt me to hear that here's this, this young boy who, his father, they just, there it is. It's right in front of them. The evidence is staring them in the face. He was so certain. Look at that, son. This is where we come from. And from that vantage point, from that place of so-called proof, they then think that if someone believes that an all-powerful God created the universe, then that person has essentially stopped using their brain because they have rejected science, proof, which is right in front of them. They then mistakenly conclude that in order to personally become a Christian, put faith in Jesus Christ, they must also turn a blind eye to scientific fact as well. And this is where Christian apologetics comes into play and is so important. For it is here that an equally intelligent Christian scientist can show with empirical evidence how science has not proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that evolution is true, that in fact the burden of evidence points to this incredibly complex universe requiring an even more complex and intelligent designer behind all of it. And we'll look at that a little bit more later on in the series. But science is only one area for apologetics. Other barriers to faith that people have erected come in the form of a multitude of questions, many of them more philosophical in nature. Questions will be posed such as these. If God knew in advance that people were going to sin, then why did he still create them? If God is love, then why does he allow children to suffer? Is the Bible accurate? Isn't it just a collection of ancient myths and fables? If God is all-powerful, why doesn't he just intervene and stop all of the evil in the world? If God is all-loving, why is there a hell? If Christianity is true, then why is the church full of hypocrites? I'm a good spiritual person. Why do I need Jesus? This is just a sampling of many of the various questions that people in the world are asking today. Some of them are asking this sincerely genuinely wondering what the answer is. I've been asked some of these questions personally. And so I know that if no one can provide a good, biblically sound answer, then these questions will remain barriers for people to place their faith in Jesus Christ. There's an excellent apologist by the name of Hank Hanegraaff. Some of you might be familiar with him. Hank Hanegraaff is better known from his radio program as the Bible Answer Man. And he says this, The need for apologetics today is crucial. Believers must realize that we are living in a post-Christian era with a host of worldviews vying continuously for people's commitments and indeed for their very lives. We must face these challenges head on. Apologetics does not supplant faith, it supplements it. Nor does it replace the Spirit's working. Rather, the Holy Spirit uses apologetic arguments as vehicles for clarifying the truth of God's word. You see, apologetics, or giving reasons for our faith, does not replace the need for faith. It's that old adage of, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. But if there's a lot of barriers between getting that horse to the watering hole that are standing in the way, we need to use apologetics to help remove those barriers to lead that horse to water. But when it's at the pool, it's still up to the horse as to whether or not it's going to bend over and take a drink, isn't it? And so it is with this. This does not remove the need for faith. It is simply used as a vehicle to help remove barriers towards people coming to a point of making a decision. Now, often like 
Watson in our opening story. We feel that we must have the perfect answer covering every conceivable angle before we answer or even qualified to give an answer to people's questions. Quite often we feel unprepared and unqualified. And we say that these things are best left to the professionals, to the theologians and the pastors and the like. But apologetics is not just for the so-called professionals. We are all called to be prepared to give an answer. That wasn't just for the pastors, that was for all believers. Be prepared to give an answer. For if we don't reply for fear of saying the wrong thing, then just like Watson, who missed the main point that their tent was missing, we can miss the fact that as a Christian, we each have eternal life in Jesus Christ. We have the the creator and savior of the world with us and in us to help us. And it is by him that we have the Holy Spirit who can guide us. And so, of course, studying God's word reading Christian books, learning about these things as a lifelong process. This is all an essential part of being prepared to give an answer. But they are only one part. They're only one part, and perhaps they're not even the most essential part. In fact, even if you have the perfect answer memorized to every theological question that you could be asked, you must always remember that you are first and foremost not in an intellectual battle, but in a spiritual battle. Often these, these things are happening in, in the realm of an intellectual question where we think we have to give some type of intellectual response. But remember, there is a spiritual battle happening beneath the surface. And 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 tells us that for the unbelieving people, this is what applies. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. The God of this age has blinded their eyes. You see, for those of you, and and like for myself, who have come to faith in Jesus Christ many years ago, it is so clear to me, the gospel message. It it just makes so much sense. I've talked about it. I've, I've looked at it from every conceivable angle that I can think of. And it just makes so much sense. I know it's true. I know that I know that it's true. And I don't need any more persuading. And it just, to me, it seems so self-evident that why wouldn't someone else believe it? And yet so many times I recognize that when I'm explaining the gospel, the love of God, his plan for salvation to someone who doesn't yet believe, the reason that it's not yet clicking or penetrating is not because they lack the intellect to understand the, you know, one, two, three, four steps, there's a spiritual undercurrent that is happening that that is where the battle is taking place. And so we must remember that when we are giving an answer, we cannot convince or change anyone's mind. Only the Holy Spirit can do that. So we must depend upon the Holy Spirit to guide our words, to guide our actions in such a way that is when we are giving witness to the gospel, we are giving an answer, that we are depending on him. And allow the Holy Spirit to use us to lead someone to the point of faith. Also remember that no words that you say, no matter how eloquent or well thought out they are, no words you say will have a greater impact than how you say them and your attitude towards the person that you are speaking them to. That is why Peter says that 
when you give your answer, do so with gentleness and respect. There's that old adage that comes to mind of catching more flies with honey than vinegar. And so you could be speaking the 100% truth of the gospel to someone in your reply, but if you are doing so in a condescending fashion or in an insulting way, uh, anything other than showing the love of Christ in your response, you're doing more harm than good. For it is your attitude that they will pick up on and not even the words that you are saying. So Peter says, do so with gentleness and respect. I want you to turn with me now to Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15. And here we're going to take the next few minutes to look at how Jesus used apologetics in the sense of replying to difficult questions that were posed to him by three different religious groups. If you turn with me there, we'll see that the first group is the Herodians, who have been put up to asking these questions by the Pharisees. Then the second group that poses the questions to Jesus is the Sadducees, and the final group is the Pharisees themselves. And we're going to spend most of our time this morning looking at the first group of questioners, the Herodians. Now, the Herodians were actually a group that uh, some of them were Pharisees. They weren't necessarily their own group in so much as the Herodians were known for wanting peace at all cost. And so the reason they got the nickname the Herodians was because they supported King Herod. Now, not very many people liked King Herod for obvious reasons, but these Herodians supported King Herod because he gave stability to the land, and so the Herodians were often looked at by the others as sort of being sellouts because they were supporting King Herod, who was essentially a puppet of Caesar's. And so these Herodians, uh, a group of highly educated, highly religious people, are put up to it by the Pharisees, and we read this in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap him in his words. That is Jesus. They sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians. Now this verse essentially sets the tone for everything that follows. Right off the bat, we are told that they are setting up a trap. It's a setup all in an attempt to catch Jesus in his words to make him lose face. And so in verse 16, we see that these Herodians, they're quite good at being conciliatory in their tone, and they attempt to butter Jesus up with flattery. Then in verse 17, they follow up after all of this flattery with a seemingly innocent question. They ask him, tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? And Jesus' response in verse 18, but Jesus, knowing their evil intent, says to them, you hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Now, I don't know if that, if that covers as gentleness and respect. <laughs> I, I've often wondered about that. Had Jesus not read 1 Peter? Well, obviously not. 1 Peter was written much later. Not exactly answering with gentleness and respect. Tell us, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You hypocrites! Why are you trying to trap me? But let's look at this a little bit more closely. The first thing you'll notice is that Jesus was not swayed by empty flattery or praise. These men came and said all these wonderful things about him. Oh, we know that you don't value men's opinion, only God's, and you're a straight shooter. And they said all these nice things about him. We know that you're a rabbi and a good teacher. But Jesus wasn't falling for any of it. Jesus wasn't going to cater to them simply to fit in with them, to be praised. You see, sometimes we just want to fit in. We just want to be complimented. And so, when we're asked about what we believe, we don't give a truthful response. Because we want to be liked. 
We don't want to be ridiculed. Someone asks you, and you say, eh, well, you know, I go to church sometimes, but it's not much more than that. And you just play it off instead of actually saying what you believe. And Jesus wasn't doing any of that. He didn't give in to flattery. He gave a truthful response. And he was not swayed by the desire to fit in. Neither should we. The second thing we'll see is that Jesus discerned their motives. He discerned them immediately. Now, this isn't always an easy thing for us to do. Remember, when Jesus knows their heart, we have to recognize that he, the Son of God, could discern all men's thoughts. And we are not given that ability, and that's probably a good thing. However, the Holy Spirit does grant us the ability to discern. Where is someone really coming from when they ask this question? And this is very important for us to be able to get a sense to discern where they're coming from because it will influence, in some way, how we respond. Now, there are three broad categories of people that... uh, of where people are coming from when they're asking a question. And most people, when they're asking a question, will fit into one of these three categories. There are cynics, there are skeptics, and then there are seekers. Now, the cynics are those whose questions are simply an attempt to put you into a difficult position for their own amusement, or to put you down in some way, to demonstrate how much smarter they are than you by exposing your ignorance or your blind faith or your dogma. And so these cynics do not come with a genuine heart wanting to learn. They are coming asking questions to simply try to trip you up and put you down. Social media platforms like Facebook can be a dangerous place in this regard because people tend to be more bold sitting behind a keyboard than they are face-to-face. Has anyone experienced this? (laughs) Keyboard warriors, right? (laughs) They won't say anything to your face, but on a keyboard, look out. They're coming with the heavy ammunition. You know, I've learned to mostly steer clear from the obvious traps of the internet troll, someone who's simply attempting to start an argument for their amusement. But one time, I I too can get lured into these things, and one time I saw a girl from our youth group who was being derided on Facebook for her faith by what I soon learned was a first-year university student who was smugly declaring to her why Jesus was a fraud. And he was giving all of his intellectual reasons and scholarly research that Jesus probably didn't even exist in history. And she was just being run down and she didn't know how to respond to him. And so just seeing this, it got me a little angry. And so I rolled up my sleeves and I waded into the fray. And while that began nearly two hours of back and forth exchanges... (laughs) And my fingers were smoking by the end. I'd, I would just finish answering one of his questions and he would fire off another and another. And I finally began to suspect that he was reading these questions straight from one of his class notes. I'm quite certain of it. But finally I just had enough and I just told him plainly, leave this girl alone. Going on Facebook and insulting people for their faith does not display superior intellect but rather a lack of character. And I just left it at that. And I had a good idea from the outset, looking back on it, I had a good idea that he wasn't really seeking answers, only a platform to demonstrate what he believed was his superior knowledge, and he wanted to put this on display by insulting others. And so when you discern that you are dealing with a cynic, someone who's not genuinely seeking the truth, Jesus' words in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 6, I believe, apply, where he says, "'Do not give dogs what is sacred.'" nor cast your pearls before the swine. 
You know, I could have saved myself two hours and a headache if I'd done just that. Sometimes going to great lengths to try to answer someone who doesn't want the answers, Jesus says, don't cast your pearls, don't throw what is sacred before those who aren't truly seeking an answer. So this is how to deal with the cynic. And this is why I believe Jesus answered so harshly to these who are posing the questions to him, because this is the category they fell into. They were cynics. They were not seeking the truth, but simply trying to trip Jesus up. The second category of people are the skeptics. The skeptic is someone who is interested in the truth. They're seeking the truth, but they always find some reason to not come to a firm conclusion. When a person says, yeah, but I just find that hard to believe, they are being skeptical. The attitude of the skeptic is always, prove it to me, change my mind, it's up to you to convince me. And Jesus responded to people like this by speaking the plain truth to them and then leaving the decision up to them. He would explain the truth, he would say, you must decide, and then he would leave it with them. And from this, I take it as a great relief that it's not my job, nor is it your job, to change anyone else's mind. It is only your job to speak the truth. The decision is the other person's. It's not your job to convince them. And they may take that stance, but it is not your job, so don't own that. If they ask the question, speak the truth, and then leave the decision with them. The third category of people are the seekers. Seekers are people who are truly seeking the truth, but they have questions they need answered. They have genuine doubts that need to be addressed. And it was these people that we see that Jesus dealt with the most gently. This is where 1 Peter, I believe, truly applies, doing so with gentleness and respect, though we should not be overly rude with those who are coming out of a different position as well. But Jesus was gentle with the seekers, and even with them, he still spoke the straight truth, and then he would still leave the choice with them. The account of the rich young ruler comes to mind. We know the story well. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus And he is sincerely seeking the truth. And he says, Master, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And of course, we know what Jesus' reply is. He says, you know, follow the prophets, obey the law. And he says, I've been doing all these things since I was a youth. And then Jesus says, one thing you still lack. Take all that you have, sell it, give it to the poor, and you will have riches in heaven. Then come and follow me. He leaves the decision up to the rich young man, and we know how the story ends. It says the man, the young man, left sad because he was very rich. He left sad. And the thing that's always bothered me about this story is that Jesus didn't chase after him. Jesus didn't say, hey, wait a minute, buddy. I was a little too harsh on that demand. I'm going to taper it off a little bit. No, he didn't. He allowed the rich young man to walk away. And we know that Jesus loved him because it says in the gospel, Jesus looked at him and loved him but still told him the truth. Jesus loved him enough to tell him the truth. And you see, sometimes we love someone so much that we want to try to soften it. We want to try to soften the heart of the gospel. But if we love someone enough, we have to tell them the truth and leave the decision with them. This is what Jesus did even with the seekers. And there comes a time where when someone is truly seeking, we have to tell them the truth. There is a heaven, there is a hell. And what we decide about Jesus Christ in this life will determine our eternal destiny. Now, sometimes we dodge this and we avoid this because the truth is hard. But if we love them enough, we must speak the truth. 
And I've often wondered about that rich young ruler. How did his story end? Did he ever come to faith in Jesus? The reality is we don't know. But one thing I do know is that a seed was planted. And this is often how life works. A seeker can genuinely ask about God. They can ask questions about the faith. They can ask about the doubts that they have. They can ask how to be saved. And you can explain it to them as well as you possibly can. But they still walk away. And you might never know how that person's story ends. But you can rest assured that God used you to plant a seed. And you can rest assured that the Holy Spirit will continue to use that in that person's life. Because remember, no matter how much you love this person, no matter how badly you want this person to come to faith in Jesus Christ, God wants it more. So we can rest assured that God is working in this person's life. Even if we don't know how the story ends, we can leave it in his hands. And so discern the motives of the person who is asking you the question. You will have a much better sense of how to respond or whether to respond at all. And so let's, to, let's recap. Jesus was not swayed by empty praise. Jesus discerned their motives and responded accordingly. And finally, Jesus answered their question, not by a yes or a no, but by using an analogy, a story. And so Jesus says to them with their question, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar? And Jesus replies by saying, give me a coin. He then holds up the coin and says, whose picture is on it? It's Caesar's, of course. And then he simply tells them, well, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Brilliant. They try to back him into a corner and he simply, by way of analogy, cuts through to the chase and says, this is not what you think it is. It's not a yes or a no. You're not going to trap me with, with some clever argument. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and God what is God's. You see, sometimes just telling someone is not enough. You have to show them in a way that they can understand. Once when I was a counselor at Turtle Mountain Bible Camp many years ago, I was leading a cabin of eight-year-old boys And I had one boy in the cabin who had caught dozens of little frogs from behind the cabin, and he had put them in an ice cream pail. Now let's just say that some of the other boys were not as gentle with these frogs as this little boy had been. And they had gotten into the pail, and I came across it, and I saw some of the frogs had already died, some of the frogs, they were taking them and throwing them in the air. But the boy who caught the frogs, he was a real naturalist. He loved these frogs, and he was quite distraught that these other boys had killed some of his frogs. And the evening came where I gave the gospel devotional. It had been in chapel. The way of salvation had been explained. And I was dovetailing that with the devotional in the cabin that evening about how Jesus had died to save us from our sins, to set us free. But the boys were just especially noisy and distracted that night. I just was not getting through. They're eight years old. I'm just like, they're not getting this. And so finally, I don't know exactly where this came from. I believe it was the Holy Spirit. This idea just popped into my head, and I said, boys, follow me outside. And so they followed me outside. They were happy to, hey, we're leaving the cabin. Great. So we go outside, and I go to under the cabin where the little boy had put the ice cream pail full of frogs. And they were still in there, sort of jumping, some of them. (laughs) And I handed the ice cream pail with the frogs to the boy who had caught them. And I then said to all of them, These frogs are trapped and scared, and some of them have already died. 
do you think that these frogs want to go free? And a chorus of yeses greeted me. Of course they do. And I then said to the boy with the pail, the one who had caught them in the first place, I said to him, because you caught these frogs, they belong to you. So only you can decide to set them free. They can't free themselves. Only you can. Do you want to let them go? And he, his eyes kind of lit up. And he says, yeah, I'm going to let them go. And so he opens the lid, and we watched all the little frogs kind of lethargically at first, but finally when they realized they were free, hop away. And I then said to them, God made you, so you belong to him. You can't save yourself, only he can set you free. And that hit home. And later that night, the little boy who let the frogs go prayed to receive Jesus as his savior. You see, just telling them was not enough. Sometimes we have to show them in a way that they can understand. And Jesus was a master of this. He always used stories, parables, and analogies to bring home the truth. Sometimes just telling is not enough. We need to depend on the Holy Spirit to give us inspiration and guidance in the moment to explain something to someone in a way that they can understand. And so... I hope that as we begin this series that this has given you some framework, an idea of how you can be prepared to give an answer. And in the coming weeks, we're going to look at some of the specific questions that people have and how we too can be prepared to answer them in a way that can remove barriers to bring people to faith. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God who has not only created who has not only created us, Lord, with, with flesh and blood and soul and spirit, but you've created us with minds, minds that are capable of thinking, minds that are capable of asking questions, but also of giving answers. And so we thank you that, Holy Spirit, you can guide our minds into the truth and that you can give us the answers to those who are seeking. And so I pray, Father, that you would grant each one of us discernment that we could see the motives of those who are asking the question, and that you could then give us the wisdom in how to respond and give us inspiration in how to speak it in a way that they can understand it, that we can help remove barriers to faith and bring people one step closer to you. Help us to always remember that this is not an intellectual battle principally, but a spiritual one, and that we would be in the Spirit praying for these people praying for their souls, praying that you would remove the blindness from their minds, remove it from their hearts, that they too could see the light of the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ, that they too could come to faith in you. And so, Father, I pray that each one of us could do our part to prepare our minds, that we would be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks, and that we can point to you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.